You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Jesse Single. Uh, Jesse, could you introduce yourself? Yeah, I am a socially isolated journalist, uh, <laughs> actually Skyping from an undisclosed location, not in New York at the moment, but uh, yeah, I'm a contributing writer and, and former editor at New York Magazine. Um write a lot about sort of social science in general and uh, abjectly terrified at the moment, as are we all. <laughs> yeah, so this is the first one, uh, uh, the first one of these I'm taping since kind of the, you know, sh- shelter in place, uh, self-quarantine rules or guidelines have been in effect. Um, and so our topic is not is not coronavirus. Uh, we'll, we're going to be talking about something else. Uh, but uh, I, I just did briefly want to mention, you know, uh, people have made this joke on Twitter, and I can't, it occurred to me as well that, you know, the Blogging Heads platform it, itself is, you know, years ahead of the curve and ideally suited to this moment because uh, we can have conversations with people uh, all across uh, the world who are also, you know, stuck in their houses and uh, no viral transmission is at risk. And, um, and yeah, and, you know, we've always, uh, blogging has always been people you know, from their home offices and stuff like that. And there've been some jokes that the uh, presidential debates will be held on blogging heads in the fall, uh, because it'll be the only option left. Um, but yeah, so, so, you know, uh, Robert Wright and Mickey Cass were ahead of the curve uh, when they came up with this and, uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, blogging heads goes on. Despite all the craziness happening out there. I've been saying for years that blogging heads, the whole ecosystem, is sort of best suited for a diseased, isolated society. So I feel like I've been proven right by that. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Okay, so – and you're – but you are holding up okay under under quarantine? Quarantine life? Yeah, this is sort of the obvious bleeding heart point, but the – the difference between like having some savings and having access to family resources or social resources, I – in New York in particular, just like walking around and seeing these restaurants that are scrambling to stay afloat with takeout, just just restaurant and service workers alone, the extent to which um, I just feel really lucky is what I'm saying. You know, both health, I don't think I'm at a huge risk of getting really sick from this thing, but just I'm I'm also avoiding economic damage. So I think it's, um, yeah, I'm doing fine. I'm, I'm really worried about the country, even if, you know, even if the best case scenario comes to pass in eight weeks from now, we can go out to eat and stuff again. Just the economic damage is horrible, but I'm hanging in there. I should say I'm usually much more handsome than this, but because of the self isolation, <laughs> you know, wearing this raggy shirt, my hair is all messed up. Yeah, you really. You know, you, I'm usually, like, you've let yourself go over the past five days. Practically unrecognizable. Last twelve hours. I did eat half a bag of Cheetos last night, which is not something I usually do. So. Anyway. Um, yeah, and you know, I think I I, I was joking that that you know. Uh, one of the you know most most of the industries in the world are being <clears throat> negatively affected by this. Uh, podcasting is maybe one of the few like non medical related industries that is actually could have a boom time because people are stuck at home and need need entertainment. And if they you know don't want to keep on streaming on Netflix or whatever, they can uh, they can listen to podcasts. Although maybe the advertisers that you know uh, are like uh, you know Casper mattresses and MeUndies and stuff are not right. going to be suffering. Although those are mail order things, so that could be. Uh, not so bad. And I should say, I should say also for the record, we've done a couple of these in the past, and I've mentioned this that we uh, we've known each other for actually a very long time. Uh, yeah. We met as teenagers and um, are friends. So let's note that for the record. Um, okay, so we're going to be talking about a piece that you wrote and was published in uh, 1843, which is the magazine of the Economist, a relatively new magazine, I think. But 
Yeah, I think it's been around a little while. It's sort of their long form, <clears throat> excuse me, by, comes out every two months. Um, just longer form articles, future articles in there. Uh, it's weird because, yeah, 1843, no one's heard of it. Everyone's heard of The Economist, so sort of the branding issue there. But uh, yeah, 1843. And I assume 1843 was the year The Economist was founded? Yeah, I forget. No, 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 I guess. Okay, but the article is is called the rise the rise of PTSD, yep. um, and so that is our main topic today. And so, uh, so how did you how did you arrive at this at this topic as something you wanted to write a long essay about? Yeah, I think um, sometimes when you're a journalist, you like you pick up some idea and you work on it for a while. You have to set it aside or it mutates a little bit. So in my case, um, there's a anti-PTSD program the military uh, set up in around 2009. That's actually, I'm working on a book and one of my chapters is about it, why this program is not scientifically backed. And through that, I just sort of ended up learning a lot about PTSD and reading folks like uh, Rich McNally at Harvard is like one of the sort of um, real godfathers of PTSD research. And, uh, you know, you just, you get to read a lot as a journalist. And I learned a lot about it and I realized um I didn't realize going in how many people recover from traumatic events on their own. I think we have this cultural narrative that if something really bad and scary happens to you, you are traumatized, full stop, and you'll need some sort of treatment to recover. And I was really interested to learn that um, the most common response to a really traumatic event is you will have some symptoms, and that could be anxiety or depression or flashbacks even, but over time, they tend to go away. That's the most common outcome is they go away. And I sort of – I mixed that finding with like some of the stuff going on in the culture right now where there's like a certain – you want to phrase this carefully because there are a lot of genuine victims in society. But there is a certain cultural currency that says – from comes from saying I'm a victim. Like I've been harmed. I'm a member of a a group that's had bad stuff happen to us. So just those two things, the fact that most people recover on their own and that there could be some benefits to seeing yourself as a victim – yeah, it just struck me as interesting. And I think those two mixed with um, 18, my editor at 1843 just wanting to write about trauma in general. And this was sort of the piece we came up with. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's a very interesting piece. We'll link to it below. Uh, encourage people to read it. So so it's kind of the um, – well, it, it seems like – so you, you start with an example of – uh, a woman you interview, but let's let's kind of start more chronologically. So maybe uh, the the kind of the first understanding of trauma uh, comes out of uh, World War One. Our, our understanding of like PTSD uh, comes out of World War One and this idea of uh, shell shock, and also this word that I'm not sure how to pronounce ner- neurasthenia. Is that how you say it? I think so. Yeah, I'm actually not sure. I don't know. I think I've only typed it. Um, right. So. You to simplify a lot of military history, uh, militaries and governments have always tried to figure out what to do with the fact that some soldiers become severely psychically damaged by what happens to them. And the most likely outcome in the past has been, you know, you, these soldiers are told they're crazy, they're unwanted, they've been subjected to everything from electroshock therapy to other cruel treatments. So in a certain sense, like governments either didn't know or didn't take seriously the fact that it's a completely normal reaction to something like war to develop PTSD. And soldiers were were not treated well for a very long time. I mean, we obviously still have a ways to go on that front, but it really wasn't until the Vietnam War 
that veterans groups and anti-war groups organized to say like these guys need help you know because obviously coming home from vietnam people had all sorts of difficult problems but it wasn't until 1980 when ptsd was introduced into the dsm that there was actually a name for this thing which of course not only applies to to veterans of military conflict but to, to rape victims and disaster survivors and abuse survivors and, and a lot of other people mm-hmm. um you're just pausing on World War One. It's interesting. I, t- I took a class in college that was called uh, Europe in the Age of Total War, and the professor's argument was like World War One was the first total war, and that the entire society was involved in it, and there was nowhere like the battlefield was all encompassing, and you know civilians were targeted, and but also like the um, you know the bombardment when you're like at the front or something was kind of like nonstop. And yeah. whereas, whereas before, if we look at like the 19th century wars or earlier, it was more like the, the battles were kind of these like one day or so affairs. And then like, there'd be other stuff, but the, the like the, the main action was, was kind of quickly ended. And then maybe like, that would be it. So, so like war changed with mechanization and all these, you know, all these other things. Um, and it seems like it became not only just, you know, massively deadlier, but also a lot more psychologically, um, you know, damaging that you couldn't, there was no escape from the, you know, horrors that were, that were going on around you. Um, and so, but it took, it took a while for, like you said, Vietnam is where you say that, I guess, does does the term PTSD come out of the post-Vietnam experience or is that, or is it later than that? No, so it was introduced clinically in 1980. I'm actually not sure it's sort of like the first time it was uttered. I, I assume it came out of the DSM subcommittee that tried to figure out what to call this this new thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, people didn't talk about PTSD as PTSD until around then. Okay. And so what, what are like the, the commonly understood um, characteristics of, of PTSD? Yeah, so it, it's basically conceived of as – you know, we have this this fight or flight response, which is when something startles you or threatens you, your body reacts in certain psychological and physiological ways. And that's evolutionarily adaptive because like in evolutionary time, a, a tiger suddenly jumps out of a bush and your, your body's ready to go, either to fight it or perhaps more wisely to run away. What they think happens with PTSD is, is certain elements of your body's fight or flight response almost short circuit or get redirected. So what you'll see is, for example, if a soldier is ambushed on a bridge, they might come home and find they have a lot of trouble going near a bridge or crossing a bridge. And, you know, unfortunately now the word trigger is sort of culture war fodder, but like it's very real for PTSD sufferer. Like you could see a bridge or approach a bridge and have all sorts of awful reactions. You could have a really profound panic attack. Um, in that and other situations, you can actually flash back to horrible things that have happened to you. I think perhaps the most characteristic symptom is avoidance, which is avoiding things that might trigger these responses and and that's bad because you know it it locks you for example a lot of um uh, veterans restaurants are hard for them because restaurants are crowded and they might feel like they need to sit with their back to a wall so they can see the exit just to escape at all times and for that and other reasons they might avoid social interactions and avoidance is really sort of locks you away from other people it can lock you away from treatment so when you talk to ptsd experts they'll often say yeah, I mean, there's all these other symptoms, but avoidance is sort of the the key thing that you need to address if someone's gonna gonna get healthier. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, was part of the fact that this came out of the Vietnam War that the returning um, veterans had kind of like a political movement 
um, to like fight for recognition and treatment in, in a way that like you talk about like in World War Two, obviously there were there were there were horrors that psychically damaged, you know, uh, millions of people. But may, but maybe just like the cultural moment then was like uh, just to talk about it. That's over. We'll forget about yeah. it. You'll be fine. You know, we'll get back to regular life. And then, like, there have been enough of a change that, uh, that the, you know, veterans could, could uh, say, like, no, like, we, you know, we need, uh, medical, you know, paid medical treatment or something like that. Is, is that what happened? Yeah, I think it's a couple different sort of historical trends. And, and as always, it, it's very hard to sort of boil this down to any one or even two trajectories. But think about 1945 versus, um, you know, 1975, how different the idea of American masculinity was like it was very stoic and pragmatic and just get shit done uh, in the 40s in the World War II era. By 1975, you'd had this whole sort of hippy dippy revolution. You had Esalon, you had all this stuff that sort of emphasized that it was OK to be a man who also felt things and who talked about stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, in Vietnam, there was still a lot of macho masculinity, but I think that did open the door crack for people to really talk about traumatic events. The other big thing you see historians talk about is um, there was a, a almost complete cultural consensus that World War II was a just war. Like we had to fight it uh, once we were in at least. Vietnam tore the country apart along the lines of whether or not the war was justified. And I think you know, it, it should be the case we care for anyone who's traumatized, whatever the circumstances. But I think if you come back from a war that people realize is just a quagmire and a disaster and pointless, that probably gives your political movement a little bit more thrust to advocate on behalf of veterans, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a kind of I don't know if it's exactly a paradox, but like so World War Two ended, you know, it was this it, it, it was a total war. I used that term earlier, like the entire society was involved in it and producing munitions and stuff like that. And, you know, millions of men were deployed abroad. And then uh, it ended huge celebrations. Everyone's happy. And then like, you know, great. We did a great thing. We defeated the Nazis and Hitler. And like, OK, let's not, you know, we don't need to deal with like anything. The after effects of that was like Vietnam. It was like a much slower end to the conflict. You know, what is the official end date of the Vietnam War? Is it like, you know, 1975 is when Saigon was abandoned or whatever, but like all the troops are by like 72 or something. Um, and so, and there was no big parade, <laughs> I assume, yeah. or, you know, uh, the, you know, uh, the V day or something, which actually was portrayed in uh, side note in that, uh, Watchmen, um, series on HBO. They had VV day where, uh, you know, the, uh, alien God, Dr. Manhattan, uh, wins the Vietnam war. But anyway, yeah. but anyway uh, yeah, so there wasn't like, we did it, we did it kind of thing. Uh, but then, so, but it was kind of like this shame, it became this kind of shameful thing. Um, and then the, um, but then the people who, some of the people who were involved were like, no, we're not putting this behind us. Um, even though like it is shameful, like what we right. did. So yeah. I don't know if I said that clearly, but it, does, it seems like a weird kind of, uh, op, you know, th- th- things got flipped. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think in both, so I have an, uh, Audie, Audie Murphy quote in front of me. He was a, uh, famous World War II veteran and performance artist. He said, after the war, they took army dogs and rehabilitated them for civilian life, but they turned soldiers into civilians immediately and let them sink or swim. So I think soldiers in both cases came back, you know, feeling ignored and disregarded, but I, I just, you can imagine how sort of the cultural currents of the forties and then fifties just made this stuff harder to talk about. And also, I mean, maybe also I'm speculating here, but like those soldiers came back and there was a massive economic boom. And it really was one of the, not for everyone, the gains weren't distributed equally, but it was one of the most productive, happy times in recent American history versus 
post-Vietnam era was not the same at all. So just different situations. Right. And I wonder, I've never seen like an essay about this, but I've, I've, I have thought in the past, like, you know, the, 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 you know, like the baby boomer generation, like their parents were, were mostly of the you know, World War II generation. And a lot of their, the dads in those families would have fought and then they came back and it's not like they went into therapy. They just bottled it up. And then like all the things that like, how many things in American history did that lead to? Like, did, <laughs> like, right. did, like did the revolutions of the six, like were, were some of the sixties upheavals, like reactions against the, you know, deeply damaged, uh, fathers who were uh, raising raising, raising these kids. Like, I, I, it sounds yeah. kind of, I don't know, it sounds kind of goofy, but I think there's like, there's something there. Like it, it, it shaped, uh, you know, it, it shaped the childhood of the, of the boomers who are still, uh, you know, still in charge <laughs> in this country and uh, have, can you have to exert massive influence. Um, okay. So, so getting back to, so what was the like treatment that was once this term came to be uh, of post-traumatic stress disorder, what, what was the treatment? that they devised. Right. Um, I mean, I, I'm most sort of up to date on, on the treatments that are well validated now. There's there are a lot of them have to do with cognitive behavioral therapy, which is, you know, basically rewiring your thought patterns in a more adaptive way. So in a military setting, they have a version of CBT called CBT or cognitive processing therapy. And uh, I talked to Patricia Rezik for my book. She's one of the, I don't think this made it into the story, but she's one of the, the leading experts. She developed this technique and, um, so let's say you have a soldier and a lot of his PTSD suffering stems from the fact that he lost a good friend of his during one particular battle. He might develop the idea, this was my fault. I didn't do everything he could. I didn't run out under fire to rescue him. And the whole idea is to like help people realize, no, like war is really random. There's not really anything you could have done. It's totally normal to feel this way, but it's just not your fault. So part of it is just, um, you know, just trying to get people to think about what happened to them in a more adaptive way. And that could be a whole other conversation about you know it's sort of controversial because like i don't know there you can see how that could be problematic but there, there's another um there's a weird treatment called uh rapid eye movement desensitization where you basically have people move their eyes in certain ways while revisiting their traumas or their triggers and it seems to work and no one's no quite sure exactly why like it's harder to tell the story I just told about cognitive processing therapy for why this works. Um, but between those two and a few other validated techniques, there's pretty good recovery rates for people who have bad PTSD over time and then gain access to validated treatment. Not everyone. There's people who suffer forever, but I'll, there really is good treatment available. Mm-hmm. Okay. So a lot of it is talk, is talk therapy. And then also this unusual procedure with the eye movements was, was medication um, involved yeah. with this also? We talked about this less in the article, but I think a lot of a lot of the best outcomes are a combination of, um, you know, sorry, I'm about to sneeze. Excuse me. <laughs> All your viewers now have coronavirus. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it, it's a combination of various medications, and one of these is often provides some of the best outcomes. Okay. Um, so, okay, so then, okay, so then this kind of. Um, you know, like there is a cultural change like associated with this that uh, people understand what PTSD is. They have sympathy for veterans, whereas maybe 50 years before, you know, so, like someone who, you know, like locked themselves in their bedroom after coming back from war would have been seen as a pathetic person or something like that. Yeah. Um, and but then it, there's also like a cultural shift involving our discussion of tra- what is what counts as trauma and, yeah. or what things can be discussed publicly at all. Um, and then what, what should be the treatment for, for those kind of people? So 
so, so talk more about that. Yeah. Well, so basically the, the, the trajectory, at least since PTSD was introduced, is like where society is more and more open to talking about trauma. Like um, the the young women I talked about who were sexually assaulted, for example, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, maybe you just don't talk about that at all. And obviously stigma is still a big issue for a lot of um, sexual assault victims. But so we've seen the trajectory move in a positive direction where it's better and better to talk about this stuff. What's also happened, though, is um, as some people have pointed out, like uh, Nicholas Haslam is an Australian psychologist who wrote about this idea of concept creep, where sort of if you look culturally and linguistically, the idea of what is like psychologically damaging seems to be expanding outward and more and more experiences that we wouldn't have considered um, harmful or even traumatic are now considered that. So it could be, you know um, – According to some guidelines or, or some resources, if you experience a one-off act of bullying as an adult in the workplace, that could be considered traumatizing. And 20 or 30 years ago, people probably would not take that seriously. And I think we're both, we're both too online, and we see on Twitter how people will sometimes say they've been traumatized by like someone, frankly, making fun of them or, quote, retweeting them. And um, it, it, it's mostly an offline phenomenon, but it happens online too. And, and so the question – becomes there is significant evidence to suggest that for people with PTSD there is some element of self-fulfilling prophecy here and this is where I get uncomfortable because I'm not like a pull yourself up by your bootstraps guy I don't think you can just like look on the bright side and make stuff better but the best people who study PTSD believe that people who latch onto their own trauma and who believe they're permanently damaged are likely to have worse outcomes. And there was a really poignant example of this from um, Rich McNally, the, the Harvard researcher I mentioned. He ran group therapy sessions with Vietnam veterans. And he said he, he often sort of saw the worst outcomes among veterans who would still come in uniform with like their medals and stuff because they had, they had never let go of the Vietnam War. They had never let go of the idea that this should be the central organizing event of their life. And you know, you, you can't ignore or let go what happened to you, of what happened to you, but you can find a way to integrate it in into a more complicated story about your life. Like this was a thing that happened to me and it was bad, but it doesn't define who I am. And I think according to the clinicians I spoke with, that's the most adaptive way to respond to a traumatic event. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is, yeah, I, this is very, all very complicated. So we should not tread uh, carefully. No, I, yeah. Um, so yeah. So 30, so 30 years ago, so, uh, a woman who was raped, um, maybe wouldn't have been believed at all or told like, you know, let's just not talk about that. Let's forget it. You know, yeah. like, okay, it was a bad thing, but like, just forget it. Uh, you know, the, the culture can like, is continuing to change the, the, you know, like the Me Too movement and, uh, what came out after Weinstein has exposed that there was, um, you know, more sexual assault and other, uh, bad deeds than, uh, most people understood previously. So, so these things are always changing. Um, so yeah, so there's people who, maybe uh had like had been sexually assaulted at some point in their lives and then like put it behind them and then like the me too movement starts and they i mean then maybe they're like oh i am a rape survivor or or something like that and that's like a new identity they they take on and then yeah in the, in the online realm you see this like so you, you see this especially among seemingly younger people uh who like put in their twitter bios like all the um like uh, mental illnesses they yeah. they have or think they have or uh, other other things so it might say something like you know you know sexual assault survivor uh you know borderline personality disorder uh right. i love power rangers <laughs> you know uh she her or something like that like that's right. their 
that's their what they're presenting is their online identity. And then uh, and then you mentioned, you know, trigger triggering before, like this has become a, you know, like a kind of a joke. But, yeah, you still see it like it's more become like content warning. I've seen rather than trigger warning. But, yeah. um, you know, so, someone will be like, I'm about to discuss uh, rape, sexual assaults, blah, blah, blah. And they put it all on top there. And that makes everyone, you know, it, it just I don't, I don't know whether that it seems like that hurts things along what you're saying, but um, I don't know where I'm going with this. It's like there's, it's, we're obviously in a time of cultural change, and and you, as you mentioned earlier, it does in certain circles being a victim does give you a sort of uh, like inverse power related to <laughs> what it has like in the rest of society, uh, yeah. where you can say like this happened to me, you know, I I'm I'm the one who can speak on this subject. You have to respect me about this. Um, well, I also think there's a more um, – I mean that's like – that's absolutely true and I've seen that a lot. But there's also like the more basic um, – people want to have an identity. And like if you go on, on to support networks, you, you see a fair number of people who appear to be self-diagnosed with whatever, with PTSD, depression, anorexia. And you know, th- imagine if you were – it's hard for us to imagine because we were so cool when we were 15 and we were like um, championship quarterbacks. <laughs> Uh, but like, imagine if you were 15 and you just like didn't have much of an identity, and you found it, and you know you were experiencing some sort of vague mental health problem, and you found a um a PTSD community, and you go in and you announce you have PTSD, and everyone, you know, tells you they feel bad for you and they accept you. So I think there's like a poignant. I don't want to. I think there's a small subset of people who do this stuff in bad faith, especially like older people our age who are like really weaponizing their identity. But a lot of it, I think, is just a search for identity. And um, it's interesting to live in a time where these these formerly stigmatized identities and and experiences are now, you know, people build their identities around them, at least online. I think it's a fascinating subject. I wish there was a way to talk about it where we, you know, um, don't fall into culture war bullshit because I think it's an interesting phenomenon. Yeah, uh, yeah, I agree. Um, and so, I mean, another thing is that uh, you know we kind of we live in traumatic times. Like yes. going back to you know nine eleven, the Afghan and Iraq wars, Hurricane Katrina, the financial crisis, uh, the election of Donald Trump. Uh, these are all traumatizing in various ways to various different groups of people. And now we have. Uh, coronavirus, which might be the first truly global trauma since World War II. I don't, I don't know. Maybe yeah. that's uh, maybe that's exaggerating. Like you know, maybe like you know, the ec- the economic downturn affected everyone, but uh, you know, we're all suddenly experiencing this bizarre thing simultaneously. And there's going to be people who are traumatized by it either because they uh, contracted coronavirus and recovered, the, uh, a loved one um, passed away from it, or just they were stuck in their house for three months and. Uh, and that you know affected them negatively psychologically. Like I see, I can see that happening easily. Yeah. If, you're, if you're you know if you're prone to depression or anxiety, uh, being cooped up by yourself uh, for for months on end is is, is definitely bad. Um, yeah. So yeah, so there's a lot of trauma to go around, and um, at the same time, uh, the, the 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 research you highlight see, indicates that viewing yourself as a trauma victim. As part of your core identity is, you know, like, some, you know, cements that the 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 neg- the the negative uh, PTSD kind of symptoms, uh, like into your into you more than viewing it as like something that happened to you, but you're you've moved beyond it. Yeah, I think I think all else being equal, which it rarely is, that that's true. That's what researchers believe is true. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, it, you're right. This is a horribly traumatizing time. I, I can't really think of anything other than something like World War II. I guess, you know, people should just realize that uh, trauma does have certain psychological and physical effects. And if you experience these effects, like if you experience one or two or three PTSD symptoms, that's totally normal. I mean, the the way I hear trauma described is often by experts is a normal response to an abnormal situation. Like this is what our bodies do. Uh, and we are living in a very abnormal situation. So I think I just I just don't want people to think like if they feel themselves starting to freak out, A, that that's abnormal. It's not. It's normal. It's a normal response to an abnormal situation. B, don't assume it's permanent. Like for most people, these symptoms will abate in time statistically. If they don't for you, there's there's validated effective treatments if you are lucky enough to have access to them. But um, separate subject. But yeah, I just I just I think like the biggest takeaway – just studying trauma in general, learning about it is people don't realize how often, it, how normal it is and how often it is that it goes away on its own, the worst symptoms. So yeah, they, I mean, you're right. This is like a horrible international natural experiment in trauma right now. And um, even just being cooped up, even if you're not physically affected or don't have relatives affected, like it's going to deal a really bad um, mental health toll to a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, it, it's somewhat, I mean, it's somewhat akin to being in prison. Like, uh, you know, not as not as bad, but like if especially if they start as happened in in Italy of being like you can't leave the house at all unless you're like going to a, the doctor or, or getting food, I guess. Then like right. the, the cops will come and like yell at you. Then like you really are um, stuck in your house. And then yeah, not not as bad as prison, but maybe some of the similar like psychological effects will will come to pass as people who are like in solitary confinement or something. Um, right. So okay, so what so. What are if if someone you know presents with some of these um, PTSD like symptoms today from any sort of trauma, confirmed trauma, not like an imagined trauma? Like what what is the st- state of the art treatment right now? Yeah, I think it, I mean it, it's things like cognitive processing therapy, rapid. Um, I need to, I always mix up the words. Let me make sure I have the name right so people can at least Google this. Uh, oh yeah, EMDR, eye movement. Eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, EMDR. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, EMDR, various cognitive behavioral therapies. um, You know, uh, psychiatrists might add some medication to that. There's a number of options, and there's sort of these big documents that health organizations put out with, like, the best – Best current treatments. This is all – it's an evolving area of research. Like I don't want to make it sound like you know there's some magic bullet, but um, I do think it's an area where like real substantive progress has been made. And you know, just going back to that question of like feeling helpless or out of control, you know, A, your symptoms will likely go away in time. B, if you don't, this is something that a lot of people have, have dealt with and um, been successfully treated for. And actually in a military context, I mean the, the biggest problem with um, Iraq and Afghanistan veterans has been – they come home and they don't they don't gain access to care. I think that's a combination of stigma, sometimes logistically, if they can't get to a VA regularly. But um, the problem is less that we don't know how to treat it and more that they just they don't get connected to treatment. I'd imagine that's a microcosm for the U.S. because we're so crappy on mental health stuff in general. Yeah. Um, and. Yeah, and certainly if you're, you know, if uh, many, uh, you know, uh, many insurances don't cover uh, mental health treatment at all, if you're not, you know, outside the military and yeah. it, it's, you know, costs $100 an hour or something along those lines, um, I wonder, you know, the the um, 
now that we have suddenly entered this era of, um, you know, kind of like telemedicine, the, the, the necessity of telemedicine being a lot more important, I wonder how that is going to play out. I mean, this is not specific to trauma, but, you know, people are, you know, therapy is usually conducted in person, and now suddenly uh, that's not, no longer possible, so um, you're doing it over the phone or over Skype or, uh, or something like that. Um, yeah. yeah, I wonder how that is going to No, I feel, I mean, imagine stuff. If, if you're someone who, like, you know, I've been, I'm not presently in therapy. I've been, I've been in therapy, but like, imagine if you go twice a week and you're suddenly completely cut off from your therapist, which, uh, it's awful to think about. Um, yeah, no, I, it's hard to even try to quantify the kind of damage is going to do. And I, I just feel really bad for the people more affected by it. Yeah. Ho- I mean, hopefully some kind of, you know, we do have these, um, Skype and zoom and things like this. Now and I wonder how much like how Zoom is, is somehow processing because it seems like every school is now being run, you know, like run through Zoom and college classes and 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 everything. And uh, hopefully they have uh, some a lot of you know dedicated servers or something. Yeah. But, but anyway, um, yeah, maybe ho- hopefully something will evolve where people who need uh you know need to talk to a professional uh can do it uh over their computer over the phone, um. Uh, if they, uh, you know, can't, if they are advised not to, not to leave the house. Um, so let me see. I don't know if I have, okay, well, maybe let's talk just a little bit more about this kind of like culture, like cultural shift in which, um, you know, talking about like, okay. So it's obviously a good thing that like talking, we've moved long past the era where like, at least in some parts of the country, maybe in some subcultures within America, it is no yeah. longer shameful if you have a mental illness and is no longer shameful if, you know, something, if you were sexually assaulted or something, it's not seen as like your fault. So we've, we've mostly moved beyond that, maybe not everywhere. So that's, that's a good thing. Um, but, but as you put out, there is this irony that like maybe not that we've gone too far exactly, but that, um, the, the things that, like like seeing seeing yourself this way which has, which has gained cultural currency in the past 10 years or so um you know actually makes makes you feel worse uh in terms of your mental health um is there anything do you see a, a solution to that i mean it seems like yeah as you said like there's there's people who maybe are saying like if you were bullied at work then you are you are traumatized because that, and you can conceive it like maybe if your boss like unloads on you or something like that, you yeah. can conceivably see that. But um, yeah, do you see? Is there a way to un- un- counteract this or undo this? So, like going like this thing where it's become harmful. Uh, you know, just I not necessarily. <laughs> I mean, not to be too pessimistic. Just more open understanding and education about what trauma is like um i keep thinking i found this reddit thread where this kid who seemed very young was like it was a ptsd thread and this kid's like i I have a startle my dad has a very loud voice and whenever i hear my dad call my name i was like i have a startle response I, i clearly have ptsd and no one responded like well maybe you don't maybe you should get checked out everyone was just like yeah you have ptsd and i i just think about situations like that like well, no, you probably don't have PTSD. There's a million reasons you could be startled by your dad yelling your name. And, and I just wish people didn't jump to conclusions on stuff like this because I don't think it necessarily helps you be you know, healthy and, and adaptive and stuff. So, But yeah, beyond that, I mean, this is all just like big swirling cultural currents that are, that are complicated. And, and in many cases, like 
we're talking about back, a backlash to stigma, a backlash to various forms of oppression. So I understand why people want to sort of flip the script and 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 embrace these identities. I just, the, you know, it's an empirical question whether it's healthy to do so. Mm-hmm. And you, we don't need to uh, name the people involved. You sent me a, tw- a tweet um, from yesterday where there was uh, okay, there was yeah. there was a person who tweeted a, jur- a well-known journalist who tweeted uh, that like she was gaining weight because she was at home and like snacking all the time. And maybe, and I guess she must have said, like, I gained eight pounds or something like that. And then another uh, person replied to that, uh, uh, castigating her for, um, like, kind of triggering uh, people with eating disorders uh, because she named a specific, she had, she, like, had a number in there. Is that what, am I describing this? (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, that, so look, I I just, I want to be empathetic to people, but it's also like, I don't think you can have it both ways. I don't think you can be on Twitter and actively on Twitter and, and, expect everyone to tweet in a way that will work around your own issues and traumas. Like, it's just not, yeah, I don't, I don't want to be mean and be like, maybe you shouldn't be on Twitter, but if, if it really affects you that much, and this is a professional journalist, the person who complained who like, yeah, so this wasn't just a random person. It was a professional um, journalist. I, I mean, I don't want to be a jerk, but like, I don't, I don't think it's reasonable to expect other people to, I mean, imagine if we applied that to everyone's triggers about everything. People do have triggers, but it's just it's not it's not realistic. But I I do think maybe I'm overthinking this, but like this was a situation where one journalist was significantly more famous than the other, and you sort of see a lot of this like trying to claw up. There's these weird social dynamics in journalism where like the more of a platform you have, the more people like try to tear you down, and I always think that's part of it. It's not just this triggered me. There's like. I'm speculating here, but yeah, that's, but that's just the kind of thing where like, I, I'm sorry, but um, I get a little bit curmudgeonly about stuff like that, I guess is how I put it. <laughs> yeah. It seems, um, yeah, it seems impossible when, if you think through it, yeah, everyone's triggers. I mean, think about, you mentioned before uh, someone who, uh, a soldier had an incident on a bridge. So right. uh, that person can't see an image of a bridge. So someone tweets their photo that they took, their selfie in front of the Golden Gate Bridge, and yeah. then the, the gate, they get castigated. Don't you know that some people jump off that bridge and and die? Right. Um, you know, you can you can kind of play this out in an infinite number of ways. Um, so, and then uh, just for a reason unknown, the the person number one in this uh, little anecdote uh, deleted the original tweet in which she said that she had gained eight pounds or something like that. Uh, oh, I, she, she's a no, she's a friend of mine. I talked to her yesterday just to catch up. She just deleted it because she likes like I'm not gonna not worth I'm not the, gonna deal with this. Yeah, not she, worth. She recently had um, uh, basically when you have a platform like hers, people will just like email your boss and try to fire you over nothing, which she's had happen to her. So, or so yeah, she just didn't want to deal with it. But yeah, again, like it's like um. But it's also like, what if what if my friend who who was the uh, guilty person here? What if she has this? Isn't true, but what if she has weight issues and it, it helps her vent to talk about it, to talk about her own frustration? You just, yeah, I, I don't. I'm not a fan of the whole policing everyone. Um, it reminded me. I wrote when I was at New York Mag. I wrote a story. Uh, I think the Times or someone wrote a story about how these social justice activists at I think Brown University. I think it was an Ivy League school. They were so stressed out and traumatized by all their social justice work for, I think, Black Lives Matter that they were missing class and stuff. And I was like, you don't, you know, you don't want to sound like a dick when you say this, but if if you are so stressed out that you're having like panic attacks about your activism, you're not going to be a very effective activist. Maybe you should take some time off from the activism and like get some this idea that like. Similarly, if you're if you're really getting triggered and having panic attacks or anxiety attacks from going on Twitter. 
what's more realistic, like asking everyone to tweet in a way that that works itself around your issues or just maybe not going on Twitter for a while. So, yeah, yeah. I'm an evil reactionary is what I'm saying. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. If you're, yeah, I, I think if you are that sensitive around specific words or numbers in this case, um, you need to avoid, you know, the place where people are constantly writing all sorts of stuff and you never know what it's going to be or just unfollow uh, people who list a lot of numbers or, you know, a small amount of weight or whatever, <laughs> whatever, uh, upset this particular person. Right. Um, do, okay. So I think that's, do you have anything else you want to say about trauma before, um, before we wrap up? No, I had one unrelated thing I wanted to say, but if, if there's anything else on trauma, you want to ask first. I, I can... don't think I have anything else on trauma. I did want to ask you to briefly describe uh, the book you're working on. Yeah. Um, so you can do that or discuss the other thing you wanted to mention. Yeah, no, the book, the book is called the quick fix. Um, we're still waiting for an official release date. It'll be out in about a year if books still exist then. Uh, it's sort of about these like TED talky social psychology ideas that often get adopted by schools or the military. These ideas we get very excited about that seem like revolutionary new ways to address trauma or to address education gaps or racism um, and just why these ideas tend not to work out despite all the excitement surrounding them. And it's sort of it's sort of a critique of – a certain American individualism that we're going to solve problems by fixing individuals rather than structures. Um, that's a slight, you know, uh, oversimplification, but that, that's the thrust of the book. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm been working on it a while. I'm very excited to see it out in the world when that finally happens. Cool. Well, uh, when that happens, uh, we'll be happy to have you back on blogging. It's a blogging still exists uh, <laughs> in a year. Although, like I said, this is pretty, you know, a pretty uh, small organization that is, uh, doesn't, uh, uh, need uh, you know a massive infrastructure, and we're uh, cocooned in our in our houses uh, doing it. So I think I think we're going to persevere. If um, you're the last person on Earth, I expect you to to die while not to be morbid, but while <laughs> recording the final blogging heads. Yeah, that'd be what a way to go out. Um, That's how I want. <laughs> okay, is there anything else? Is there anything else you want to add before we uh, wrap up? Yeah, I. Um... Some of your your viewers and listeners might know Katie Herzog, um, very problematic journalist and a friend of mine. We're we're going to record one or two pilot podcasts about online bullshit, about the weirdest, craziest online stuff, and what it can sort of teach us about human nature. Ideally, this would be a podcast even normies, even those dreaded normies, could listen to and learn something about human nature and the internet. And I figure a lot of your audience is, is too online the way I am. So I'd, um, yeah, we're just looking for feedback on the kinds of stuff you'd like us to talk about. Uh, yeah, this is a total experiment might not work out, but you know, we're all locked at home anyway, and we've been talking about doing this for a while. So we're going to give it a shot. Okay, cool. Yeah. Katie was just on uh feminine chaos as, uh, with, uh, Kat Rosenfield and Phoebe Maltz-Bovey, um, as a guest and has been a guest on this show before yes very uh very controversial uh figure and um you know she works for um what is her what is her paper called the, the seattle she's got she's on furlough at the stranger which the is stranger on the, right the which is the all weekly in seattle yeah. and uh you know one one thing i had never even thought about uh, you know like second order effect of all this is like uh, those all weeklies um rely a lot on you know, advertising from restaurants and comedy events and concerts and stuff. And once all those stop, the advertising stops and then they can't make payroll. So, she, so Katie is, uh, you know, even though she writes about like politics and culture and stuff, um, not restaurants, like she, she got furloughed from that. And yeah, so all the, you know, that's just one of the many kind of 
uh, depressing uh, of uh, things that's that's rolled out, and we're just at the at the beginning of them. Um, so I so I, I hope um, I hope the podcast goes off. I, I'm feeling that we're we're about to enter a period um, when um, uh, tens of thousands of new podcasts are going to be launched every day as people are stuck at home and trying to figure out something to do with their free time. Um, so uh, so yeah, good luck to that. And so say say the name of the podcast again. Oh, we don't know. That's one of the things we could use advice on. Is, okay, um, <laughs> so so it's still yeah. still in the uh, still still in the works. Okay, so so uh, so check. I guess check your Twitter feed if or Katie's Twitter feed if. Yeah, anyone can email us or tweet at us if you have ideas about um, either the name or, or sort of what we should cover. But yeah, um, yeah. well, it's certainly a f- fertile ground for um, <laughs> for uh, for picking apart. Yeah, exactly. And then probably I I was wondering if Twitter is going to get better or worse during coronavirus because like worse. a lot of normies are <laughs> probably joining, but the crazy people are only going to get crazier. And you're going to have things like you mentioned gaining weight, so I'm, so I'm triggered. Sorry, I should not make fun of it. Like a lot of these people. Yeah, all right. I'm going to get myself in trouble if I talk much more. So okay, yeah. Twitter Twitter is only going to get worse as people are more and more cooped up and yeah. have nothing else to do besides like get into obscure fights with strangers online we're, we're, in a, we're in like a temporary period now where people are not having their usual feuds mostly i think but i think like once people are cooped up for another week or two they'll just go back to the same bullshit okay yeah that makes That's sense there's, there's a kind of like we're still all kind of shocked and adjusting to this new reality and people are like well you know i don't need to have a giant fight about which is the best you know my little pony character um, you but, said, but, I was gonna say when, when you said the best, I was gonna say race. <laughs> you said my little pony character. Um, well, yeah, those important arguments either way. Yeah, those are the two big online arguments: are My Little Pony and and you know race realism. Um, yep. So uh, yeah, so those will probably start up again soon. Okay, so so Jesse, thank you for coming on. Uh, good luck in our new reality of quarantine i think we'll i think i think we'll be okay i hope we'll be okay um people should really like not interact with others i've had trouble with that but really stay home (laughs) because we're the we're the two people that are looking to for guidance on what to do so just say about this yeah yeah aria jesse say stay home Uh, i told i told all my twitter followers uh hey uh wash your hands um and use soap don't forget about the soap so, yes. um, okay. So, so thank you, Jesse. Thank you to all, all of our viewers and listeners and we'll see you again next time. Thanks guys.